seated. If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Matthew chapter 4. We will soon be reading from verse 12 through verses 24. If you don't have one with you, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you in page 759, and that Bible will lead you directly to Matthew chapter 4. One of the first things as you read children's books to very small babies that you learn uh, to teach them is opposites. Our youngest uh, foster child has a, one of the, he loves almost every book that we read to him, but one of his favorite books for a while was a Curious George book where he liked to point at George falling in the water because he was dry and he is now wet and he would just say oops, oops, oops over and over again. So we, we have taught him that there are opposites. There's dry and there's wet. There's right and there's left. There's up and down, high and low, right and wrong. He's, he's really struggling to learn that last one, but, but, you know, with God's grace, we'll get there someday. I, I also am struggling to learn that last one, so it might be a while for him and for me. But we, we teach these things very early, and we, we tend to learn them well. But it doesn't mean that they're always easy. Everyone who knows about opposites eventually comes to that place in elementary school where you're trying to announce that it's opposite day, but you can't do that because saying that it's opposite day, if it's opposite day, means that it's not opposite day. And everyone who has, who has gone through that little paradox knows what I'm talking about. If you haven't, then just think about it for a bit and it'll eventually come to you. We learn these things, we learn them well. It's not a hard concept, but we don't always carry it through. Christianity is in many sense meant to be the sort of opposite of the world, its values, its rituals, its responses, its priorities don't seem to match up very well with the world. As a matter of fact, quite often what we find is that it is polar opposite from what the world is. But we can at times be led in our thoughts to simply consider Christianity in terms of an optimization or, or a, a way of, of efficiency within the world, that it's just teaching us a better way to be in the world. So to give you an example of how this works, let's think of of something like the public schools. We could pick any of a number of things. I'm not picking on the public schools, but think of the public schools. And they face a lot of difficulties in this world. We can't tackle them completely on a national level. So what we do is we, we take certain districts and districts try different things. They try organizing schools differently and, and teaching subjects a different way and, and leading children through their education in, in unique ways in order to find something that might work, that might work better on a national scale. And we, we scale it up. What we're trying to do is to optimize how we teach children so that we might do it better. We're trying to find the right use in in our own lives in a number of different ways of our time and our money and our efforts to figure out what what the laws are, what the rules are in this world, that we might follow them better so that we could live according to them and flourish. We think that Christianity sometimes is like that. We flounder when we follow our own thinking, but so long as we follow Jesus and follow his path and his rules, we can live rightly here in this world. We optimize our lives and we live better. Now, thinking's not completely wrong. There's a place for speaking like that. There's a time for speaking like that. But it does not catch the entirety of Christianity. Christianity that Christ brought and is indeed still bringing into the world stands opposite that world in many ways. Christians are to act like aliens and sojourners in the world, that we, we are from here, but now the customs and the practices, the way that the world works is alien to us, and we are aliens to it. It's like 
traveling to a foreign country and being inundated with all the odd things that they do. We'd stand out. We are to be opposites, not just epitomizing what the best of the world can be, not just optimizing what is in the world, but actually standing against it. Our Lord's kingdom is not of this world, and therefore those who are citizens are not of this world. And as it comes into this world, as the kingdom of God finds its place in the world, as opposites do, it comes into conflict with the world itself. Today we begin to read through the very introduction of the ministry of Jesus to us in the book of Matthew. All the way through chapter 4, we find, again, having read of his, his genealogy, having read of his infancy, we are finally now at the start of his ministry. And his ministry is here, in a sense, the beginning of a conflict. Let us see how the Lord handles this and what the Lord calls us to as we read through Matthew 4, verses 12 through 24 this morning. Matthew says this, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of our God. First thing from this section of text I would like to present before you this morning is that Jesus offers peace. Jesus offers peace. Hearing of the arrest of John, which we will come back to much later in the gospel, Jesus traces his steps back up towards his hometown, but he does not go to Nazareth. He instead goes to other places in Galilee. We might wonder why he does this. After all, if you are beginning a, a, a movement among the Jewish people, Jerusalem is the place to be. It's the place to begin. It's where all the important people are. It's the center of life as, as Jews know it. And so you would think that he would begin there, but he retreats to Galilee. You might ask why that is, but Matthew gives us a very simple answer. He retreats to Galilee because that's exactly what Scripture says that he was going to do. 
Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the tribes of Israel, and they were placed high in Israel, not high in order, but high as in north in Israel. The land was always somewhat removed from the very heart and the center of Israelite life. Jerusalem was the place of the tabernacle, and then the place of the temple was the place where the worship of God was to be presented. And so they were always sort of far away from the center of Israel life. And, and even then, being as far north as they were, they always had conflicts with Assyria and other kingdoms that were directly on their border. Problems, of course, that the southern kingdom didn't quite have. They were much more protected by their geography. And so when the Assyrian forces finally conquered them, they were one of the first tribes to be exiled, to be deported. They never really truly came back. And even though Jews settled in that area, they were not considered quite as deliberate or as as devoted to the things of God as were the people in Jerusalem. Matthew, just as Isaiah does in his quoting of Isaiah, notes that this is not just a place where Israel dwells and the Jews dwell, but this is a place where the Gentiles lived. It's called literally Galilee of the Gentiles. If the darkness of the deportation and exile that happened because of Assyria lingered on that place, it certainly has not fully left, even though the Jews have moved back in. And Jesus has come to give these people light. And it's not just light for the Jewish people. It's clearly light for every single person who is there. Matthew later on will will talk about not just the region of Galilee, but all of Syria being, being inflamed with this passion about who Jesus is and what he is doing for them. People are bringing both Jew and Gentile people to be healed, and he is healing them. When we consider what is going on here, we, we read through especially this little quotation from Isaiah, it fills us with a warmth. This quotation, for, for a number of reasons, fills us with warmth, not just because of the, the way it's quoted, but the place that it comes from, it, it's a Christmas passage. This is directly before we, we read in Isaiah, for to us a child is born. It's, it's a passage that reminds us of Christmas, of the hope of Christmas, of the goodness of Christmas. Even this idea of a light coming to people who are in darkness gives us warm feelings, good feelings of the grace of God. We, we read this morning, you know, tears may tarry for the night, but hope and joy come in the morning. When I think of this verse, I, I, I think primarily of like summer mornings in Michigan. When we lived in the south, even though it was much warmer, we, we didn't do what our family loves to do, which is sleep with our windows open. I love having my windows open at, at any time of the year that I possibly can get them open without my wife telling me it's too cold outside to have it open. And, and sleeping and waking up to warm spring, summer air is just a beautiful thing. I, I just... It's much more pleasant than waking up to the hum of your air conditioner, I think. And so it, it fills me with this sort of warmth about, about how light comes to us in the morning, the goodness of, of what Jesus has done for us and the, the help that he provides to us. But we can't just think of that without the truth that sort of lies behind it. Jesus, in a number of ways, is distinguished from John in this gospel. John seems harsh. He seems weird. He, he frankly has this picture of, of somebody who is rough and tumble, literal fire and axe preacher. Jesus, on the other hand, is known for his compassion, his care. His, his sermons are not so much fire and axe as they are welcoming and inviting. Matthew 
sees this distinction and puts upon the lips of Jesus a great deal of distinction between John and Jesus. Later on in the, math, in the, in the book of Matthew in chapter 11, Jesus says this, To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. John is a sort of ascetic, angry preacher speaking of death and the mourning of sin, and you just called him a demon-possessed hillbilly. I, I come with my message of grace and compassion, of a lover and a preacher of mercy, and speaking of life and joy over redemption, and you, you call me nothing but a glutton and a drunkard. And the way in which both Jesus and John went about preaching was dissimilar. Jesus notes it himself. John was like a dirge. This is like a flute playing, and, and, and it doesn't matter which way we bring it to you, you reject it. Certain people are, are much more apt to preach fire and brimstone. Some of them are much more apt to, to pull people in with emotion and pathos. It doesn't matter. In the end, the content of what is said is really what is important. What is said here about Jesus' preaching is word for word, in its summary, exactly what Matthew summarizes John's preaching as. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Jesus arrives as the dawn, but he still calls for repentance. There's a warmth to this, but there is also a warning to this. That without repentance, there is no light for you. Without repentance, you will continue to sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. This repentance, this change of life, this change of not just, just mind, but of soul and of heart, this change of how you live, you are to do because the kingdom is right behind us. It is about to come in. And this, if you've been here for any amount of time, if you've been to churches that sound like us, is not a new message for the vast majority of people. You've heard it before. I would like to, though, give you perhaps a different way of thinking about this particular call to repentance today. And I'd like to do it by thinking through a passage, one particular verse in Deuteronomy 20. In Deuteronomy 20, Moses is giving instructions for Israel and how they are to deal with war. And the first part of the passage is really talking to different groups of men and saying whether they should go to war or not, given different life circumstances. And then in verse 10, he pivots. And it, he doesn't tell us what cities you're to go to war against. He doesn't tell us what the reasons for going to war are. But he says, if you do go against a town, if you do go against one of these isolated cities to fight against it, this is what he says in verse 10. When you draw near a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. When Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven coming, we shouldn't read that as anything but a declaration of war. There, there, is, there is a kingdom that is coming against the kingdom of this world. It is at hand. There is a battle coming. There is, there is war about to be unleashed. And when Jesus goes then to a place and says, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand, that is an offering of peace. He's saying, the kingdom of heaven is going to come. 
It's, it's at the border. It's near. It's right behind me. And I'm giving you an opportunity to have peace with God. I'm giving you an opportunity to have peace with that coming kingdom. Stop living the way the world would have you live. Stop living in sin and debauchery and selfishness and depravity. Stop living according to the whims of current fashions and whatever culture you might find yourself in. Give up all of that and follow me. For the army is at the door and is about to enter in. In this sense, Christians really are a lot like Rahab. Rahab, who hears the story of of God's people. She hears them. She sees them. She knows that they are coming. She knows that they are coming with their God, and they know that their God is about to make an end of Jericho. She leaves her allegiance completely to Jericho behind her. She becomes treasonous to them. She lies to them. She plots the downfall of Jericho. She sides with Israel and with Israel's God. This is the call of Jesus. To repent is to turn your back on this world. It is to change your allegiance. You have to make a choice. Not just one time in your life, but each and every day. Will you stand with the kingdom of heaven? Will you walk in its paths? Will you follow its king? Or will you side with the world? Will you sit in its darkness, in the shadow of death, and face the wrath of this incoming kingdom? Jesus stands at the gate and offers you peace. Follow him, or you will die in your sins. Secondly, Jesus offers potency. He offers potency. If we are to read these verses, and even the start of his ministry is something of the context of war, which I don't think is a wrong thing to do, we might expect that Jesus is going to start to have to acquire the things and the people. He needs to carry out that sort of thing. He's starting a movement at the very least, and you need people for a movement. You need certain things that will help and aid the movement. The movement is not started because he expects it to be small, but because he expects it to be large, and so certainly he can't do this alone. He's going to need to bring people on. He's going to need to get people to follow him, which will help him accomplish his tasks. And if we were thinking on our own, we might come up with various things that if we wanted to start a movement like what Jesus was doing, that we would want to have on our side. Certainly some people of strength and military might would be really helpful. And we, we know it's not an actual war. And you might even say, well, there's no need for that. But at the same time, we understand that even if Jesus doesn't want to carry out an actual war, that is the way of the world. And it won't harm us to have protection and, and might on our side. And, and even so, it, it probably is helpful to keep people in line every now and then. There's always propaganda as well. We are not fighting a physical battle, but a religious one, and maybe those people wouldn't have understood it then, but you still have to kind of get out in front of the narrative. You've, you've got to make sure that the way people are thinking about you is, is the right way and not the wrong way. There's plenty of false rumors that are going to be spread about Jesus. There's plenty, plenty of false things that are going to be said about him. And, and he needs to have people who can control those things, who know how to handle the social media of the day. Even if it's not on a cell phone, they still are social and they're still talking to one another. He probably needs somebody to be in charge of that. He needs mouthpieces people who can persuade, who can take this sort of simple message that Jesus is preaching and, and give it out to the masses. Those who are skilled in speech and in rhetoric would be extremely helpful in this as, as they go town to town. 
He can't expect everyone to come to him. They just can't do that. And, and what's more, having a couple of people of, of influence would be incredibly important. Like political influence in Jerusalem and with the Romans, uh, maybe, maybe financial influence because this is going to cost money. Everything costs money and it would be helpful to get somebody on his side who can, who can help him out with all those things. Jesus must know these things. We, we expect him to be assembling all these people together. We expect him to be kind of assembling his own little Camelot. And so it's strange. The first people he calls are fishermen, not the theologically savvy Pharisees, not the, the politically powerful Sadducees, not the militarily brave zealots, not the, the Torah-trained preachers of the priests, but fishermen. They, they have no training for anything that Jesus is going to be asking them to do. Now, I know Jesus has this nice turn of phrase here, I will make you fishers of men, but they're not going to be catching men the same way they catch fish. The nets are left behind. Like, it's a turn of phrase which kind of implies that there's a similarity, but there's really no similarity at all. There's nothing that they offer Jesus that he needs. A meal every now and then, perhaps. But honestly, meals don't win wars. Why start here? Why not go to Jerusalem and start to require other people to come along? People of influence, people of skill, people who, who know the theological things of which he's talking about and he can convince them of. The fact that they are fishermen and they have nothing to offer him is exactly the point, though. It's why Jesus does that. The point is that Jesus takes people who are not and uses them by his own good power to make them conduits of that power. This is exactly what Paul says to the Corinthians. Corinthians are overwhelmed with their desire to be found as famous in the world and noble in the world and well thought of by the world and important in the world. Paul rebukes them because that thinking is, again, opposite of the kingdom of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose you. He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. He chose them because they had nothing to offer him. That's the reason why he picks them. So that he can show that the power is his and not theirs. And look even more than that on how he calls them. I, I, you should be convinced that there was probably more that was said between Jesus and Simon and Andrew than what's recorded here. But you should also be convinced that the summary that Matthew provides is actually a right summary. That when you boil it all down, it was nothing more than, Simon and Andrew, how's your day going? That's great. Come and follow me. Like, there's not a lot of negotiation. There's not, listen, you can sit on my right hand if you can drink the cup. There's, there's, there's not a whole bunch of like, this is who I am. This is where I come from. I'm going to take you through Isaiah, and I'm going to make sure that you understand exactly what I'm going to do, and, and I'm going to lay all of it out for you so you know what you're getting into. He just looks at him and says, come on. And these morons are like, yeah, let me sign up for that. They did. They followed him. 
It is an amazing thing. This, this passage is amazing that they just, that's all the information we're given. Come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. They're like, I don't know what that means, but it sounds super fun. And they, they're leaving. Is, it is unfathomable what they're doing. They don't have skill in anything else. They know they don't. There's a reason why they're fishermen. It's not because they chose to be fishermen. It is likely that they are fishermen because dad was a fisherman before him, which is exactly what is true of the sons of Zebedee because Zebedee's in the boat with them. They don't know anything else. We might think that it's crazy, but frankly, it seems irresponsible and reckless and dangerous. James and John do the exact same thing, if not with more force there. He doesn't even call out to them. He doesn't call to them. He simply calls them. It's almost like he whistles for them and says, come on. And they literally leave dad in the boat. We have been called in the same way. Not necessarily to leave our jobs and family, but certainly we have been called to change how we interact and deal with the things of this earth. The Lord Jesus has called you. Everything, everything must be on the table. How are you to accept the call of Jesus and then give him the terms of how you are going to handle your life? How, how do you accept the call of Jesus and then set limits on what he can expect out of you? If Jesus wants to make you a fisher of men, may it be so. If he sends you to Africa, go. Send you to China, South America, go. If he sends you to a university campus, go. If he sends you to an inner city, go. The one thing you can't do is stay in the boat. No matter what's going on in your life, if he has called you, you're his. You are a servant of him. And if he tells you that your lot is going to be lived differently than you have conceived of it, may it be so. And notice, you're probably thinking, if you're thinking through that right now, you're probably a little dissuaded by the fact that you yourself are much like Simon and Andrew, and you're probably a lot like James and John. You're thinking, I don't have skills to do any of that because of my age or, or where I'm, I'm at in life or the skills and the training that I've gotten. But this wonderful truth is that Jesus' power is all that Simon and Andrew need. Notice how clearly he says this. He doesn't say, listen, come and follow me because, because some of the leadership characteristics I see in you as you cast your nets over your boat are the same sort of leadership character. I can tell by the way you hum that song, Andrew, while you work, that you're going to be a wonderful leader for me. No, he says, I will make you. You're not what I need. You're, you're not who I need you to be, but I will make you that way. Are you concerned somehow that you're incapable of helping the kingdom of God, that you have little to offer, that you're not skilled, intelligent, or holy enough to help the kingdom of God? You're right. The glorious news is you're right. Everyone likes to hear that. So let me tell you again, you're right. You're not skilled enough for it. 
You're not, you're not wise against the schemes of the devil. You're not powerful enough to take on the world. You're not holy enough to resist temptation. You're impotent. But Jesus is good enough to give you potency, to give you all that you need. Not because of who you are, but because of his power working in you, because of his calling and his election and their surety. Jesus offers potency. Finally this morning, Jesus also offers power. For those who lived at the time, they would probably need a lot. You've got to wonder exactly what Simon and Andrew were thinking. It's a very difficult thing that they followed him. But for a lot of people, simply being called by a stranger on the shore would not be enough. Those who lived at the time without the benefit of our hindsight, the question has to be percolating in their minds. What kind of a kingdom is he offering? What what kind of a, a person is this? Is he true to his word? Is he good to what he's calling us to? Is this all going to end in my failure and my ruin? Many other people have arisen by this time claiming to be the Messiah. They've all lied about it. They've all failed in it. What makes this guy different? Even if he's not, liberators can easily turn into enslavers. What's to keep this man from Nazareth of being true to his word? What if he fails? Matthew envelops this text with Jesus preaching and teaching. He begins by talking about his preaching and teaching, not only in verse 17 where he says, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But even in verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He ends this passage by leading us directly into the Sermon on the Mount, this very sustained teaching. So all of it is about teaching. But here at the end of chapter 4, he leaves the teaching and talks specifically about these miracles. And the miracles get center stage. Let's be really clear. It has nothing to do with the teaching of Jesus in the synagogues or his proclamation of the kingdom of God's coming. Even the good news that he preaches is not why his fame spreads. His fame spreads because he can heal people. To be honest, I think that that makes some of us uncomfortable. It makes me as a preacher a little bit uncomfortable because it seems as though it's not the word of God as he preached it that made him powerful and impactful, but it was the healing ministry that he had. We model ourselves quite a bit off of how Jesus preaches and teaches. This is the, the example. We're going to get to the most famous sermon of all time. It's the example for how you are to preach and teach. Are we not then to do miracles? We're not, I don't feel uncomfortable in this because we're afraid of, you know, how it's going to affect our view of science. I don't think that we're, we're sad that Jesus was making people happy by, by providing them this grace and this mercy of healing. I think it's just a matter of where the placement of these miracles comes. What is the importance of these miracles? Are these for us today? Regardless of where you fall on those issues, it is important that Jesus does these miracles and important for a couple of reasons. First, this shows Jesus' power to bring about the ends that he seeks. He's looking at the people of this world and he's saying, you have all these diseases and these sicknesses. This is the nature of the world that you know. It ends in death. It ends in cancer. It provides blindness and deafness and leprosy to you. It provides paralyzing accidents and diseases to you. 
It allows you to be demon-possessed. That's what this world offers. And while his healing of these people is not going to be permanent, these people, even the ones that he resurrects here, will eventually die again. Nevertheless, it is but a foretaste of the very nature of his kingdom. My kingdom is not a kingdom where deaf people will live or blind people will live or paralyzed people will be. Mine is a kingdom of wholeness and health and goodness. This is what my kingdom looks like. It shows his power to bring about those very ends. Secondly, it shows his power over sin. We know that for whatever reason, these diseases and these sicknesses are here, it is due to sin. And we can go to John 9 and we can ask, well, is it because of this man or his parents' sin that he is the way that he is? And the end result is it doesn't matter. We know that the only reason why sickness and death and demon oppression are in this world at all is because sin has been introduced to this world. No one in here would get sick. No one in here would be ravaged with the pains of this life if not for sin, whether yours or someone else's. And the very fact that Jesus can remove the effects of sin, that he can overwhelm the effects of sin, shows his power over that sin. In Matthew chapter 9, we'll get to the famous passage of the paralytic being let down through the roof and saying, get up and take your mat, and people getting upset. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus says, hey, which one is easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or to get up and take your mat? But get up and take your mat, bro. And he does it. But the whole point is, if I can tell him, if I can heal him, then I can certainly forgive sins. If I've got power over sin to undo their effects, I have power over sin to forgive it. Third, it shows Jesus' power over his enemies. It helps people to see every single demon-possessed person who was brought to Jesus ends healed. Not one of those demons can withstand him. They don't fight him toe-to-toe. It's never really all that hard for Jesus to undo it. And some of them come to him and plead for mercy from the very beginning. Jesus has power over his enemies. Satan is the ruler of the world. He is the one in power over all of the universe. This is, or over all of the, the, the world that, that exists here, over all of the kingdoms of the world. This is why he offers it to Jesus. It's a real and true offer in the temptation. It's his kingdoms. He owns it. And Jesus coming in is able to just quickly dispatch with all of his minions. It's important to realize that. Jesus is stronger than they are. You know what happens to traitors? If Rahab helps those spies and the people of Israel fail, the walls of Jericho don't fall. She's not going to be treated well by the rest of Jericho. Her treachery and her rebellion against Jericho are not going to be laughed about over a couple of beers later. She will be killed as all traitors are. If you're going to side with Jesus, you need to know he is able and capable of winning the war. The very fact that people are bringing him oppressed, people who are oppressed by demons and and possessed by demons, and Jesus is consistently and constantly casting them out and none of them can stand up to him, should give us hope that Jesus has power to do the very thing that he has claimed that he can do. And that power lends credibility 
to his teaching about the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus offers all of this power to you by his miracles. That power is working for you. It is to help you, to aid you, but even to give you victory over sin. It's good for us to remember that today is Palm Sunday. It's the day that we remember that Jesus makes his very purposeful entrance into Jerusalem as a humble king riding on a donkey so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. The people meet him that day with palm branches in their hands, which were signs of military conquest and military victory. It's often remarked how over the course of that week, a great change happens in the general populace. That the same people who chanted Hosea on Sunday, or Hosanna, excuse me, on Sunday, were the same people who were going to crucify him on Friday. And thus, the obvious implication is to not be those people, to not change how you feel about Jesus, to make sure that you're not just giving him lip service on Sunday, but you are avoiding the implications of his kingship throughout the rest of the week, that if he's king on Sunday when all is well, that he is still king on Friday when it seems the world is overwhelmed with the shadow and confusion of sin. Don't let yourself be worn down by this world. Do not lose your love of Jesus. All of that is true. But I think in some way it misses really what's happening with the crowds. What's happening with the crowds is not that the people change. The problem is that they didn't. They didn't have a love of the Lord on Sunday that somehow left on Friday. They had a love for what they wanted from the Lord they had a kingdom in mind. They had, they had gifts in mind. They had provisions in mind that would come from him. They had him doing things for them that they thought he ought to do. And when it was clear that that was not what Jesus had in mind, they had no use for him anymore. They wanted a worldly empire which would be free from Rome. Some of them certainly wanted power, wealth, and status. They wanted freedom from the shackles that they had, freedom from the poverty that they had, freedom from the difficulties that they had. And when it became clear that this man wasn't going to give them what they wanted, they didn't change their mind. They acted according to the very same desires that they always had. The problem wasn't that they changed, but that they never did. They never knew repentance. They never truly did repent. They never really truly did change their mind. They never really truly did want to follow Jesus. They wanted to use him. So as we move through Holy Week this week, remembering the great sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ for our sins, that he has given us the power to be forgiven before God, welcomed into his family and his kingdom, be granted this great inheritance that we get, and be vessels even for his work in the world. Let us never forget that to proclaim him as Lord and King is to proclaim that it is he who we follow. As Jesus has called us, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let us pray. Jesus, you have called us to a kingdom that is not of this world, that does not follow the patterns and the customs of the kingdoms of this world. Help us to be a people who rightly live in that kingdom. Give us wisdom and fortitude to do these things, for it is a difficult road we walk. Above all, grant us grace.
that our hearts may be changed, our sins forgiven. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. If you would stand and sing with us our song of response, I stand amazed in the presence.